Welcome to Crushing It, a podcast with notes of knowledge, hints of hilarity, fun forward, and super cheesy, which always pairs well with wine. That's good. Mm. <laughs> a little bit of class goes a long way. That's all I'm saying. It's really pleasurable mouthfeel. On a scale of like prison hooch to a Willamette Valley sunrise, I would rate this a solid seven. Girl knows what she wants. <laughs> they need to put wine in pounders. I'd like to get my hands on that Methuselah. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit about this wine. <laughs> this is um, this is something exciting. This is something new. This is brand new. This, this is, is our very... This is our very first, uh, I don't even know what, guest lecture? What do we call this? Uh, Study session. Study session. Mm -hmm. It's our first study session because we say over and over that we're not experts, obviously, um, on wine or podcasting. Obviously. But but we do know people who are experts, and so we get to talk to them. and. as we kept hearing kind of about weather and fires and wine and all of that stuff, I thought to myself, hmm, right, Carly? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. <laughs> no, I thought it to myself. <laughs> but I feel like I can hear your thoughts now. <laughs> um, do I know an expert on this? And gosh, it turns out. Sure do. That I do. So joining us this evening, she has no idea what she's getting herself into, is Dr. (laughs) Erin Upton. Ooh. Hi. (laughs) Hi. Now, let me me, uh, give me one second. So Dr. Upton is a doctor of philosophy (laughs) in earth, environment, and society. Is that correct, doctor? Yes, you can just call me Aaron, please. Doctor Aaron, sure. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. um, your dissertation for your doctorate. <clears throat> can I read it, or do you know it by heart? You can read it. Oh, I was kind of hoping you knew it by heart. It will be a little uh, overly academic sounding, so apologies. Perfect. No, because then we're just going to explain how you are the smartest person alive. Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Her dissertation is titled, (laughs) Understanding Institutional, Social, and Ecological Systems, Influencing Climate Change, Adaptation, and Water Governance in Wine Regions. Here is where it gets really smart. It's a comparative case study of Oregon's Willamette Valley. That's where we are. And... Tasmania, Australia. Yes. Um, wow. What that means is Erin somehow talked people in <laughs> to paying her to travel all over and study wine regions. Good for you. It's Good for you, Erin. Good life choices. Yeah, mm-hmm. no joke. <laughs> yeah. Listen, so, the doctor has wow. it figured out. Uh, so wine country where we are and wine country Australia, mm-hmm. the same. Um, that similar yeah so I chose those two regions to focus on because 
they have a lot of similarities, but they also have a lot of differences. So they were really interesting to kind of compare and contrast. Let me get my Venn diagram out. <laughs> I'm prepared. I'll Science. also add in there that um, I really love the wine from both of these regions. So there, that might have swayed uh, my selection criteria. Correct me if I'm wrong, doctor. <laughs> but did you not travel to other regions as well? I did. I did. Um, yeah. Initially, I had kind of bigger, broader questions. I didn't quite know what I wanted specifically to focus on um, for my doctoral research. So yeah, back in 2016, I started uh, doing a series of research trips to different wine regions um, to investigate some of these questions. So yeah, I started out in Napa, California, um, and met with a bunch of folks down there and did a number of interviews. And then I went to um, the Western Cape in South Africa. And a few months later, I went to three different regions in Australia, two in Victoria, and then down to the island of Tasmania. Ugh. So jealous. Um, <laughs> all of those things. I would, you know what? If I thought ahead, I would have had a glass of um, Australian wine right now. Are you drinking a glass of wine? We recommend it, doctor. We always recommend it. I am drinking a glass of wine, a delicious white blend from a place you all might be familiar with. Mm. Bring us back. Bring us back. Let's yes. see. Let me see what you're, I think, oh, 2018. Cuvée A Amrita sparkling white wine from Anami Vineyards. It's amazing how we mention them every. <laughs> I mean, they're, give, they're giving roads. us like royalties, or I feel like they should start right? paying us at some point. <laughs> okay, so what made it about those two? So Willamette Valley, where we are, of course, and then Tasmania, that made them like good candidates for your research. Is it the cool climate? Yeah. Okay. So I guess maybe I should back up a little bit. So I, I was in the environmental science and management department at Portland State University, and I was more, I was really interested in doing um, kind of what are the human dimensions of environmental issues. And so my research was really kind of focused on the social side of things. And um, some of the bigger picture themes I was curious about were um, issues around land use. So like what happens in a wine region as it's growing, um, transformation of both kind of like culturally the place and then also like physically or environmentally the landscape itself. Um, and then kind of layered on top of that, I was curious about some things around climate change. And so what would it mean in some of these regions that were experiencing some challenges or maybe some changes, or maybe we're anticipating that there would be changes in the future um, because of uh, a climate that was becoming less predictable maybe, or more variable. So those were kind of like the big questions I had. Um, and then ultimately, after I had this chance to go and do this exploratory research, 
when I would travel to these regions, I would meet with a whole range of people, or as nerdy social scientists call it, stakeholders. Um, but mainly it was people who were um, making decisions about land use or about water resources or people within the wine industry. So I'd meet with like the county planners or I'd meet with somebody who worked for a, a conservation nonprofit or I'd meet, I met with a lot of, of uh, viticulturists and vineyard owners and winemakers and um, and so kind of got a lay of the land of like, what were some of the concerns? What were some of the issues? And ultimately, after I had visited um, kind of in those initial trips and understood kind of the array and range of, of challenges and issues, I kind of honed in on that I really wanted to focus on like how regions made decisions about water resources, but also in the context of a a changing climate. So that all kind of background stuff brings me to when I visited Tasmania. And then because of my own personal history in the Willamette Valley, I could see there were a lot of similar characteristics between these regions, but they were having really different ways of approaching how they made decisions about water. And so I thought they would be an interesting um, two interesting regions to kind of compare and contrast. Um, plus, it also then allowed me to travel, I think, yeah, four times to Tasmania. <laughs> so that was, that was great. Um, That's genius. Yeah, it was really, really interesting and really wonderful. And I learned a lot and I was able to, you know, meet really great people and make some hopefully kind of lifelong lasting connections in that part of the world, too. So I don't know, Sarah, if I completely answered your question, but... Oh, well, you know, it's not even like a, it's not even a question like I know what the fuck I'm talking about. It's just like a, um, let's, let's ask a vague question so that she can start telling us all of her really cool stuff. I think it was well, well said that um, you, you know, you talked about kind of what drew you to the two after you had been visiting Tasmania. Yeah. And I guess like Tasmania, um, so Tasmania is, a, is an island, um, south of the mainland of Australia. It's a state. So like Victoria is a state or New South Wales is a state, like Tasmania is a state. And they have a they have a really similar wine industry to Oregon's Willamette Valley. They were kind of um they, you know, kind of the 1960s was the early days of planting grapes. They grow cool climate grapes, so Pinot Noir and lots of cool climate whites. Um, but they're also really well known in the in the wine in the small wine world for um sparkling wine and um they also because they are a cool climate region that is their like most adjacent closest region is the mainland of Australia which is really different um conditions for grape growing um they are experiencing with shifting challenges in climate around high temperatures and drought um they're they're experiencing a big influx of investment and winery owners from the mainland coming um to Tasmania and either buying up existing vineyard land and wineries or expanding um, and I saw that parallel happening in the Willamette Valley in Oregon, where we were getting um, a lot of interest and investment from um, outside regions, for example, California, where not the only driver of them coming up and investing. And in, I mean, there were lots of there's a variety of reasons why the Willamette Valley is a desirable place to come buy vineyard land. But as some of these regions in California were experiencing like really extreme conditions around fire and drought, like. 
Oregon uh, and temperature, Oregon um, was a good investment in long-term kind of climate planning. Uh, so I saw those parallels, the wine parallels, and then I guess the contrast to where we just, we have really different histories with how we manage water in these two regions. And so I was curious to kind of investigate that. Yeah. Awesome. Let us take a second first, because this wasn't your original area of study, correct? <laughs> in my life? In your life. <laughs> where well, did we begin here? Kind of a, yeah. Hold I have on, a... Let, me, let me crack open this can of wine for a story. <laughs> yes. a what are you drinking? Ah, the sound <laughs> of wine. <laughs> Listen, 2020, hard times. True. Okay. In your in your prior lives, we know that you did other careers. So why don't mm. you give us a little bit of uh, of the story of how you ended up interested in wine? I guess you're not in the wine industry anymore, but well, right. I guess you are in the wine. You're now in charge of it because you're the doctor of the wine industry. <laughs> but no, um, I feel like let's more of an outsider now. Well, I grew up in. I am uh, born and raised in McMinnville, Oregon. Woo. Mm-hmm who might know that area well. And I initially, after college in Eugene, Oregon, uh, moved to the East Coast. And East Coast, I lived in New York City for a number of years. And I worked in nonprofit arts organizations. And I went back to school and um, got a master's degree in landscape architecture in Vancouver, Canada, and then moved back to New York and worked as a landscape architect for a number of years in New York City. And then uh, was missing kind of the siren song of home and the West Coast and Oregon and wanting to be closer to family and, yeah, really missing the landscape and the place. And so back in 2010, God, 10 years ago, um, moved back to the region, to the Willamette Valley. And, um, yeah, kind of ended up ended up in a, in a log cabin on um, 35 acres in the woods outside of Newburgh. <laughs> Uh, did it have a bathroom inside? I'm inclined to ask these things. Yes. Actually, it was kind of a fancy log cabin. Um, a medical doctor owned it and he and his wife had moved up to Seattle and they had like rented it out for the first time. Long story short, because of some family connections, um, I was able to rent that, um, which was quite a transition from Brooklyn. So, but I loved it. And, um, I was interested in, I think from coming home and visiting my folks every year, um, I was really curious and interested in uh, how the wine industry had been growing um, in my Because you had been away for a while and then you came back and everything was totally different. Yeah, yeah. But I had like, I'd been, I'd been back to visit regularly. So we, I just thought it was kind of this cool, like, oh, nice. If I'm home for the holidays, like we can go to a winery and go wine tasting. It was like nothing that I engaged with at all when I was younger. Yeah, gotcha. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I had kind of observed that it had, uh, it was a kind of growing burgeoning thing. Um, and yeah, so at that time I wanted to learn more about it and I took a part-time tasting room job at Anami and Sarah already worked there. Because forever. Forever. Uh, Yeah. And then I just, um, that job turned into more of a full-time gig. And I ended up on a me for about five years. And I 
uh, was the direct sales manager, ran the tasting room and the wine club and all that good stuff. And then I kind of transitioned into being the operations manager, doing more behind the scenes um, work. And yeah, I guess during my time working in the industry, I continued to be curious about like, what was this industry in my home landscape and how was it growing? What did it mean for the people and the communities? What did it mean for the landscape? All that stuff. And so I started getting curious as I felt kind of ready to transition into something else. And I thought, oh, it might be kind of, kind of fun <laughs> and uh, like a great, interesting experience to be able to go back to school and dig into some of the topics that I was getting interested in. So yeah, that was that was kind of my path. It was a good five-year chapter where I got to learn a lot and have a lot of really, really interesting, engaging experiences around the world with amazing people. So I told time. you, the smartest person <laughs> alive <laughs> talked people into paying for her to travel around and drink wine. This one. <laughs> and frightening didn't you see a bunch of frightening spiders oh my god australia and spiders definitely (laughs) definitely i love that it's true (laughs) yeah yeah what was funny was the one of the like the last time so the last time i was in tasmania was last february right before everything got shut down before before kind of the covid shutdown and I was staying with a friend of mine who's a professor at the University of Tasmania and her family. They had kind of this, they called it the shack or the shed or something. It was kind of this like outbuilding that they um, had lived in while they were building and renovating their house back in the day. And now it was kind of more of a guest quarters, but still pretty rustic. And um, they asked me if I wanted to stay up in the loft. And I I just was like, "Ah, so close to the rafters. I know. I know there's so many spiders. So Are you going to ask Carly if there's a bathroom? <laughs> no, the bathroom is I, in the main house. I, have to I don't know what would be scarier, the spiders or not having a bathroom. But also, I'll say with the no bathroom, I in that I would walk to the main house for the bathroom. Although I thought of just going outside, but there was but she pointed out that <laughs> there is a a little nest of like poisonous ants that was near the front door. <laughs> so I, what I the thought, heck know, is I'm this place? Step outside and just, you know, <laughs> use a tree. There might be poisonous ants or snakes or spiders. But yeah, so one night, Beck and I, my friend and I had stayed up late drinking wine and I made my way back to my sleeping quarters from the main house. And there was the biggest huntsman spider. <laughs> wall and I how was big sleeping. how big are we talking I mean it's kind of like the size of your palm ah. and it's not skinny it's like a <laughs> legged spider oh and so the nice thing about huntsman spiders which I got more comfortable with later is that they don't bite you and they're actually pretty shy and they're not gonna like crawl across your face at night but your brain doesn't know that or think that <laughs> Nope, absolutely uh, not. Yeah. It resulted in a very um, dramatic, like, find a yogurt, con- like me running and getting back and her acting really kind of like brave and stoic. And I was like, oh, she does this all the time. And she got a very large yogurt container and we like knocked it down from the high up spot on the wall with a broom and she trapped it and took it outside. But she had <laughs> she was so, her nerves were so rattled. <laughs> 
<laughs> she said, I put on a brave face, but I was not feeling brave. So I didn't sleep that night. I didn't sleep that night. Um, Wait. Tasmania, one of my favorite things about it is the animals there are just amazing and strange and wonderful to encounter. So I really, I mean, like a couple of spiders. I never saw any snakes, although they do have a couple of poisonous snakes. Um, and there are those ants, but you can kind of avoid those ants. Um, but the how other- many how many kangaroos did you come encounter with? Yeah, so so many kangaroos. But on um, on Tasmania, because it's an island, they're most famous for the Tasmanian devil, which you probably remember from the Warner Brothers cartoon. Warner Brothers. Yeah, Carly right? actually does a really good impression of it. Go ahead, Carly. <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Come on. I am not a performing monkey. <laughs> oh, you you're getting shy. You won't do it now. I see. Okay. All right. Sorry, listeners. I, Maybe later. If I ever do that, just <laughs> stop me and check for my medication. <laughs> but the devils are actually they're really really cute. You don't really see them because they're nocturnal. But if you go to visit a wildlife preserve or something like that, you can see them, and they're actually really sweet cute little animals and the possums in Australia are different than our North American opossum and they're also really really cute and the kangaroos so the kangaroos they have smaller kangaroos on Tasmania than on the mainland and they call them wallabies and then they have an even smaller one which is really cute that they call patty melons um and then my favorite, well, I have a couple of favorites, but there's wombats, which are a, a marsupial that look like a giant, kind of like a teddy bear. Um, I love a good wombat. Pig. Yeah. And, then <laughs> and if you want to like... Sarah, see, I've you know, always said that. <laughs> if you want to see like the cutest thing ever, um, you should Google like people holding wombats. I'll just leave it there. You can Google that. They have really cool animals there. I'm yeah. definitely Googling people holding wombats. And What'd you um, this is amazing. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Did you, so, um, you know, when this gets big, then we'll all travel to Tasmania. Yeah, and do, that and was do the, the um, remote show. The nature, uh, <laughs> David Attenborough <laughs> <laughs> <Lime podcast. laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, or the Snoop Dogg, knowing you guys. Either way, Snoop Dogg. <laughs> uh, I mean, we we reach out to a lot of different uh, hobbies and just you know pieces of enjoyment for our listen to, listeners. So I feel mm. like talking about some crazy animals right. is always a good thing. People totally. can't eat those. No. But I just want to confirm that you have seen, you have seen not even the cat dog. <laughs> you have seen Snoop Dogg narrating animal documentaries. Oh my god, I love that. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> I love, love that. that reference. Made sense. Mm-hmm. Or gotten way off track from wine, but I'm cool with that. <laughs> I don't know that they're. Oh, sorry, Erin. Yeah, that's what we do. Yes, um, it is. That's why our interviews go on for three hours. <laughs> All right, Erin. Now, sorry, doctor. Um, your research is all related to water and climate and all that, mm-hmm. yes? And so mm-hmm. 
we were going to have you on later because, of course, this is very, um, what's the word? Important. <laughs> Again, yes. not, the, not the word that I want. There it is. That's the word. <laughs> but in terms of, of what our future might look like, for example, mm -hmm. and, um, and so there's a lot more that we could talk about. So you'll likely see the doctor later on in our podcast. But Ooh. for now, people keep talking about the wildfires that we had mm, in 2020, mm -hmm. right? Right. And um, I couldn't help but think about how that is all related to what you've been looking at. And so I was hoping that you would be able to speak a little bit to that, maybe talk about if that is our future, if we can mm. potentially expect more of this. Um, I don't know. Yeah, sure. What's the future? Give it to us. Um, straight uh-huh <laughs> no, no as a, yeah good bedside <laughs> manner but just tell us the truth doctor okay. yeah warm okay. your hands first please but then whoa <laughs> oh <laughs> oh what that was too far <laughs> i wasn't thinking about the gynecologist i was just thinking about like a oh i thought you were thinking about the proctologist go on i'm oh. just so glad she knows you <laughs> Okay. okay, climate change. Yes, <laughs> it is a very hilarious subject. Oh. I'm glad you brought me on to talk about it. It's uh, definitely a comedy subject. <laughs> yeah, so the future, you just want to say specifically for Oregon, Willamette Valley? No, I don't. I don't think it has to be specifically. If it compare, obviously, Australia had those oh, big my fires. Gosh. I mean, yeah. it seems so long ago that we <laughs> forgot that it was so recent. But, right, um, it was just one year ago, yeah, and, and that that affected Tasmania as well. I'm guessing. Sure, yes, Tasmania definitely has bushfire as well, and so mm -hmm. kind of the parallels sort of continue. And so, what I don't mm -hmm. know, I don't know. You yeah, know. yeah. Okay, so I can definitely share a little bit about what is going on in Oregon and what we can um, potentially expect going forward. So one of the things um, I was listening to one of your previous podcasts where the winemaker was talking a lot about the the smoke this year and how it was impacting his uh, everybody's winemaking uh, decisions. Um, I, I, I recall you 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 guys pointing out how it was pretty. Yes, we've experienced we've definitely experienced smoke in different regions in Oregon and Southern Oregon and the, in the gorge, um, but it was pretty unique for us to be socked in in the Willamette Valley um, <clears throat> this year, and that is definitely true. And unfortunately, um, that's not to be uh, that's something that we are going to have to continue to kind of be prepared that this could continue in our future going forward. And so a couple of the, um, the factors around that with a changing climate, um, and I'll just say, I'm not an expert in climate change. I'm not um, a natural scientist. I'm not a climatologist. I'm a social scientist, but I have done a number of, um, I've worked on a couple of projects in the valley, um, specifically kind of more in the Clackamas River region, which is um, a sub-basin of the Willamette River and is probably just about 30 to 45 miles from, say, Minville area, Newburgh area, um, in the heart of the Willamette Valley. And so I worked with some climatologists um, 
and fire forest fire researchers um, on a project in that region that was unrelated to wine, but it was looking at kind of climate change futures and what it meant for water resources in that region. But one of the things that came up about fires is that historically we just really haven't um, in short human history had fires on the west side of our Cascade Mountain range. Um, usually when we have, like we are in a fire landscape and typically when we've had fires um, in our lifetimes, they've been, or in the last hundred years, or 200 years, they've been um, high up in the mountains or on the east side of the state, um, which is a different, different eco regions, different climate, and a lot less populated. Um, the issue on the west side of the Cascade Mountain Range, and in the, so the for the listeners who aren't in the region, you know, the Willamette Valley is a valley in between, like the high Cascade Mountain Range to the east and the slightly lower um, mountain range, the Coast Range to the west, and because the the majority of our population in Oregon lives in this region from the northern part of the Willamette Valley, um, Portland, down through the state capital of Salem and all the way to kind of the middle of the state down south in um, in Eugene, like most the majority of our population is in this region. So historically, we haven't had fires as um as frequently or as large as we experienced this year. And that's for a couple of reasons. One is that we're in the rain shadow of the mountains. And so we're a lot wetter on the west side of the Cascade Mountain Range than the regions on the east side. Um, and so we don't have as much um, kind of dry fuel for, for forest fire. But secondly, there's just a lot more people living in this region. And so we're much more... Um, quick to put fires out and not allow fires to burn on the west side um, because of human health, because of our um, structures. Um, and there's also a lot of other resources like we recreate up in the, the mountainous areas on the west side. We go camping, we use the water bodies for recreation. So there's a lot more fire suppression on this side um, just because this is where we are and where, where we live and where we um do our activities for the majority of Oregonians. So going forward, um, we are projected when all of the, the climate scientists do their um, run their models about potential climate change outcomes and say through the end of the century, um, we're anticipated to have um, hotter, drier summers and summers that have more days of hotter like higher temperatures in a row so more days of like 90 plus degree weather in a row um, just to be clear you're saying i'm not going to get another 2011 vintage <laughs> well actually to be clear i'm not saying you're not going to <laughs> <laughs> i'm not um, saying you're not saying that i'm just asking <laughs> Well, and actually, that's a really important point is that these are models. These are projections. And, and these sure. are talking about trends. And so you might have a year that's really wet and really cool. Um, but the general trends, if you are looking at um, t trends over time, that is going to be the direction that it's going in. So you might have a year that is, is cooler or you might, but that the general trend is going to be hotter, drier in the summer. We're also going to be having warmer winters. 
But what these scientists do is they look at all of the data, historical data that they can get, which allows them to kind of um, program their models to create a bunch of different output scenarios. So they'll do a they'll do a scenario that's like the worst case scenario. They'll do a scenario that's kind of moderate, and then they'll do a scenario that is kind of low impact. Um, so they're not saying like this is exactly what you're going to get, but they're saying this is the range of what you can probably expect. And one of the things that um, I think is really important. I've heard people say, instead of saying global warming, you should say global weirding, or instead of using the term global warming, you should use like <laughs> climate change, because really it's just going to, it's going to vary depending on region. And so some areas of the world are going to get cooler or experience more storms or have more droughts. Like it's just going to vary. So it's not that every single place on earth is going to experience the same types of weather, um, which is where the kind of global weirding comes in. Like it, things might be be different than they've been in the past. Um, and so, for example, one of the regions um, that I was visiting in Australia on my first trip um, on the mainland, they were talking about how they had never experienced this before in their lives, but their um, red grapes were ripening before their white grapes. And that they they that had never happened before and typically they would bring their fruit in and they would press their white grapes and then they would clean everything up and then they would their red grapes would get pressed later and now their their vintages were not only coming in at unpredictable times they were also in the past their vintages had lasted from you know they would last for three months but now everything was ripening so fast they were bring they had to bring in all their fruit in 6 weeks and so that just that kind of trickled down to having lots of impacts for staffing and having enough bins to put fruit in that's all coming in at once and how do you manage press loads if they're coming in all at once and so there was just a lot of logistical things that they were trying to sort out as they were experiencing this compression in their vintages so with with the climate change challenges like it's not just like we will have a fire and smoke taint or we will have a hot year with too much ripening on our fruit. It will, it, or we will have not cold enough winters. So our vines don't um, go through kind of the part where they get woody and can resist pests that come. Um, there's just like a, there's a whole range of um, impacts that can happen as your climate starts to shift in your region. And so in Oregon, I think the hotter summers, the more intense heat, but also prolonged heat. And then the actually the warmer winters are going to be impacting things as well, because with a warmer winter, you're going to be having earlier bud break, for example, on your vines. And if you're having earlier bud break, you might also be more susceptible than to being zapped by frost that comes in late February. So normally, if your vines were going to produce their buds in April, but they're starting to produce their buds in February because they didn't have a very cold winter and they are getting going early, they're more susceptible to damage of that March frost that came. So there's just there's just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of variability. And I think the I guess the bigger message is that it makes it really challenging for those working in the wine industry to really plan for um, 
for how to, they have to be really nimble and adaptable and they have to kind of create resilience in their systems to uh, respond to the unknowns that are going to come with these, these different climate challenges in their regions. And the caveat being my research is not comprehensive to every wine region in the world or even every wine maker in the Lemon Valley. Maybe you could get them to pay for that. <laughs> so, so this is tell tell them that we're your helpers. <laughs> yes, I need research assistance. I'm um, sure on the on the dissertation helpers, Sarah Santa's elves like a, a budget line item. <laughs> but really, I mean, it's true. You talk to when I talk to farm to viticulture to winemakers and farmers they you know a lot of them are like yeah this is farming like it's it it varies every year you have to be nimble you have to be able to respond one of the things that i really got interested in as i was kind of digging deeper into these issues was all right so like particularly around water resources so like who's at the table making decisions about water in our region Who's missing from that decision-making table? And like, what does that mean for the wine industry? So in the Willamette Valley, like most people aren't thinking about water <laughs> because we think, oh, it's like a super rainy region. Yes, we have drought and dry summers, but we rain, we have rain the rest of the year. And um, sorry. Oh my God. Was that real rain? Was that, like, a rain that was zone? pretty good. That was pretty that was good. good. How did you know I was going to see that right there? <laughs> That was Sarah's like signal that I was getting too serious. (laughs) The sounds of the rainforest, please relax. Here comes a wombat. (laughs) You should hug it. It's so cute. Telling me to hug things. I'm not a big hugger. I won't make you hug hug anything. She should know I'm refraining from telling lots of embarrassing stories about her. All right, Carly, listen, what kind of questions do you have for the doctor? She just laid a lot of knowledge on us. I know there's just a lot. And uh, I'm trying to think of, okay, so when we're thinking of water in the Willamette Valley, you were starting to say, you know, yeah, we have obviously a lot of rain, like we are very green here, and we get that because of our nine months of rain season. Mm-hmm. Um, so then what part does the water, I mean, like where why is problem? that, yeah, yeah, why is that such like a, like a hot topic for this area? Yeah, so it turns out we think we have a lot of water, but we don't actually have a lot of water. Ooh. So yeah. that just like hit the bullet points. So we are rich in water for part of the year, uh, but it's not the part of the year that we actually need it if you're doing agriculture. <clears throat> and so we're getting it in the winter months, but you're going to, if you're irrigating your crops, you're going to need it in the summer months. And you might say, but we don't irrigate our vines, which is true and a bigger, more complicated <laughs> subject. But to Okay, because I was going to say most places, I mean, the places I've worked, there's no irrigation. Yeah. Exactly. So this is this is what and this is one of the reasons why I thought it was interesting to look at at 
the Willamette Valley and Tasmania, because these are both places that haven't like experienced serious shortages yet, but are anticipated with climate change modeling to have it in the future. And so um, currently and historically, most of the vineyards in the Willamette Valley are not irrigated. Um, there is a kind of a bigger picture of water where we actually need water for other things besides just irrigation. We need it for spraying in the vineyard. We need it for um, operations. So in the cellar, the tasting rooms, all of the agritourism that comes with, with the wine industry. So visitors and hotels and lots of toilets flushing and dishes getting washed and restaurants and things like that. So kind of zooming out and looking at a regional scale, if the wine industry is thriving, like we are going to need that resource in order to um, thrive as well. Um, so in, in the, we'll just stay focused on the Willamette Valley specifically. So in the Willamette Valley, um, we actually have really varying ways of accessing water and it really depends on where you are geographically. So let's just take our friends at Anami Vineyards. They're in the Amhill Carlton viticulture area. They're up on this ridge and um, it's actually a very dry area. There are not any aquifers that produce much water at all on that ridge. Um, I've actually interviewed people who have lived on that ridge for six generations and they've always dry farmed that ridge because there's never been water. They have in the summer months when they were kids, their parents would take the laundry and the washing into town to the laundromat because they just knew that their springs and their wells would run dry. They just don't have water in the aquifers. So um, I guess um, there are two ways to get water in Oregon. You can either get it from the surface, so you can get it out of a river or a stream, or you can get it from groundwater, which means you have to have a well. And all of the water in Oregon is owned by the people and managed by the state of Oregon, the Oregon Water Resources Department. In order to use any of this water, you have to get a water right and you have to get a permit of use from this government agency. Um, there are not Okay, any... sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, this is any, like, like a home that wants to <clears throat> dig a well? Yep. Or like, okay, Everybody. anybody... Everybody has to apply yep. for this. So if you need domestic use, if you need commercial use, if you need agricultural irrigation use or processing use in your turkey farm or your cellar or for your winery or whatever you're doing, every single person who is going to use any drop of water in the state of Oregon has to get a water, you have to have a water right and you have to also get a use permit for how you're, they have to approve how you're going to use that water that you have a right for. Okay, so for example, in a city like McMinnville, does the city apply for that or does every individual business apply for that? The city applies for that. Okay. Okay, okay. thanks. But in Oregon, it's really complicated. I guess the, the main point is that there... <laughs> There isn't any water left that's not allocated to somebody already. It, the big picture is that de demand is going to increase while this resource is going to decrease. Um, so the way that our system is currently set up for allocating water to people is probably going to have to shift, which is going to be extremely painful and litigious <laughs> and take a really long time. Um, so there's, so my whole point about 
um, water issues is that we're going to need it beyond irrigation. But in the future, um, a number of winery owners, particularly ones who are coming up from California, they're putting in their vineyards with the anticipation that they will irrigate if necessary in the coming decades because of climate change. And so they're being pretty strategic about securing water rights wherever they can or buying properties that already have water rights affiliated with them. So they know that they will be, they will be set on the water front going forward. So it's a complicated. (laughs) Wow. I feel like, it's like you need a doctorate to understand it. <laughs> I but... have uh, the perfect ending question. All right, Carly, what's your perfect ending question? All right, doctor, <laughs> get me straight. How important is water on a scale of one to ten? Ten being the highest. <laughs> this is your perfect question. <laughs> I hate you so much. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go really, really high on that scale. That's fair. It seems pretty important after this. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to I'm going to throw in my own personal biases here and just say water is life and the fact that like we can commodify it or turn it into something that can be bought or sold is extremely troubling to me and I feel like water is a public right and a public good and needs to um not be part of the marketplace and not be part of something that only people with the means to buy it can access it. Um, so I think water is incredibly important. I'm going to go with a 10. I feel like that's a fair assessment. And I agree. I feel like we're uh, <laughs> maybe treading some interesting waters if we're starting to sell something that is supposed to be, I mean, it's here. Yeah. Everybody should get, everybody should get it. So, yeah. Oh my goodness. I don't even know, like, I have no more questions because I have so much to absorb. I'm sorry. Should we also tell our listeners that we recorded this from like 8 p.m. to 10 p.m.? <laughs> <laughs> and that my can of wine ran out a little bit ago. You <laughs> might be just a little bit loopy or I might be. Yeah, no, oh. it's, it's, it's all good stuff. It's like, it's all stuff that, uh, it matters. Yeah. That nobody is thinking about as much as they should be probably except you. Sorry, doctor. Hurts your brain. No, I need some escapism. (laughs) Have you guys watched any good like movies or streaming situation lately? Oh, don't ask her. She's in the middle of Christmas movies. I'm doing a lot of rating of Christmas movies, so... Oh, you don't want to watch yeah. any of my murder stuff. So, oh, true. Um, yes. no, thank um, you. I'll think on it and I'll get back to you. because <laughs> we, we do watch other stuff. I promise. But <laughs> goodness, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. You're welcome. Thanks for uh, inviting me. Yeah, this has been super great. Not only are you fabulous, but your big, big brain um is definitely making us think um plus you're past, gonna you're past gonna, the water in our wine you're gonna have to you're gonna definitely be looking at hugging wombats a lot more i hope <laughs> i feel like i've become a wombat in <laughs> in my quarantine um, 
amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Erin Upton. Be sure to follow her at Research Bliss on Instagram to see what she's up to. Yeah, I've tagged her in uh, a post already on our story, but at Crushing It Podcast, you can find all sorts of Aaron stuff coming up. And maybe wombat hugging. Oh, there's definitely going to be a couple wombats in there. <laughs> Throw in a patty melon too, but no huntsman spider. Absolutely, Ooh, definitely zero. the spider. Come on, what about that lady that's been living with one for two years? Just it's her roommate. Exactly. <laughs> Put that in there. Terrifying. Yikes! All right, thanks, doctor. Thanks for having me. It was fun.